The following program is produced and furnished in conjunction with Roger Waldron of the Coalition for Government Procurement, which is entirely responsible for its content. Welcome to Off the Shelf with Roger Waldron of the Coalition for Government Procurement on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. Off the Shelf gives a voice to commercial service and product companies selling in the federal market. Roger speaks to members and government officials about procurement policy, trends, innovations, and debates. Now your host, Roger Waldron. Today my guest on Off the Shelf is Jason Workmaster. Jason is a Partner at Miller Chevalier is that a, a, our, our terminology for for a partner is member, but but okay, yes, so you, are, you are a member slash partner or, or IE partner at Miller Chevalier. Correct, um, uh, Jason. As uh, a regular guest on the show um, over the years, uh, one of the uh, experts in cost reimbursement contracting out there in the federal bar. Um, as well, you know, you do a lot of commercial. You do a little bit of everything, right, Jason? I, I do a little bit of everything. Well, yes. with that in mind, can you talk a little bit about your background? And it's always also always interesting to hear how people got into government contracts. Yeah, yeah. So, yes, uh, I, I always always find that interesting as well because I have yet to meet the person who, you know, came out of the womb, you know, Same. Yes, I want to be con- a government contract yeah, lawyer. I have not met that person yet. <laughs> no, yeah. And I was not one of those people. <laughs> Neither um, was I. <laughs> so, you know, when I went to uh, went went to law school and I wanted uh, at the other end of law school, I wanted to clerk for a federal judge. Uh, and uh, I was hired by a, a federal judge on the Court of Federal Claims. Yeah. And so that was my uh, first job out of law school. And um you know, a lot of that. Uh, we'll be talking about the court in a little bit uh, yes. later. Actually, we might even be talking about the very judge I clerked for because uh-huh. he is the the judge in the Jedi protest, which we oh really be, oh okay. yeah. So we might wow. talk about that a little bit later. But uh, so uh, I clerked at the court for a year. A lot of the court's uh, caseload uh, is government contracts disputes, uh, protests as well. Uh, and so did a lot of government contracts while I was at the court and found it, you know, very interesting. Do they do a lot of patent law too? Is that right? Not, 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 not the Court the of Federal court Claims. claims. The, fe- the, court of, the Court of Appeals for the Federal Circuit, which is the appellate okay. court over the Court of Federal Claims, okay. they hear patent cases from any place in the country. But uh, the Court of Federal Claims, uh, only their print, you know, kind of the, the high-level description of their jurisdiction is any money claim against the federal government okay. pretty much has to go to the Court of Federal Claims with a few exceptions. Uh, so, and that would include, you know, claims for money under contracts, mm-hmm. takings cases, that kind of stuff. Okay. Uh, so we did, have, but we had a, back, back then. For any of the listeners out there who remember the Windstar cases, yes, uh, out of the sa- yeah. savings and loan mess out of yeah. the late '80s. The, back when I was clerking, uh, there were the court was, you know, had scores of those cases, and we had a number of those cases when I was uh, clerking uh, back then. Uh, very interesting issues. Uh, so following that, um, you know, I was I was looking for the next the next job. Following you know, clerkships are one year gigs for the most part. Uh, I uh, went to McKenna Long and Aldridge. Uh, back at that time, I was having McKenna and Cuneo. Yeah, uh, long, you know, it's, it's, you're older than I thought, though, Jason. Uh, <laughs> I, was McKenna, I was I was still there when Cuneo was in the name, uh, as which became McKenna Long and Aldridge. I was there, uh, made partner there. Um, I was there until 2015 when. A group of us uh, were at McKenna, moved over to Covington and Burley, and I was there for several years. Uh, and then uh, just uh, early, early part of this year, in January of this year, uh, moved over to uh, Miller & Chevalier. But regardless of you know which firm I've been at, it's always, I've always been doing government contracts. Lots of disputes. We'll be talking about a number of you know disputes, contract disputes, 
kind of at the back end of a sure. contract when mm-hmm. things go horribly, terribly badly, and you need a lawyer. I do that kind of work. Uh, then, of course, at the front end, when you're fighting for the contract and protests, I've done a fair amount of that kind of work as well over the course of my career. And then, Roger, you know, you and I have worked a lot on GSA schedule issues. Yes. And I had a, uh, you know, I got into GSA schedules uh, in a big way in, in like 2006, representing a, a GSA schedule contractor in a False Claims Act case. Uh, that lasted for about five years. Wow! Uh, and you know, you really learn. The yes, schedule. those cases can go on. <laughs> those and cases on can go on and on and on. And, yeah. on. and you really, and you really learn the, you know, really learn the schedules by having when you're litigating a, a case that right. involves them. Yeah. Um, so, cost reimbursement contracting. Ah. I think we're going to talk about it a little bit, but yes. just for the uninitiated or those out, out there who, you know. It's a huge tool in the federal government used for lots of different things, especially by the Department of Defense. It, it is. So just a brief description of sure. that, and then perhaps we can get into the some of the cases that you've worked sure. on or been following as well. Sure, sure. So cost reimbursement contracts, as the name suggests, when you contract with the government uh, in a cost reimbursement contract, what you get paid is your incurred cost. So that's, this is unlike, you know, to use an example, you know, you go out to buy a car. When you go out to buy a car, you're paying a fixed price for a car. You know, a car right. is 20000 bucks. doesn't matter how much it costs to build it. You're paying 20000 bucks, whatever it is. You know, a co- that, is not, that is not a cost reimbursement contract. That's a fixed price. Uh, cost reimbursement is you go to a car manufacturer and you say, okay, build me a car and I'll just pay you whatever it costs you to build it. Uh, you know, cost reimbursement contracts under the Federal Acquisition Regulation, the FAR, are supposed to be used when there is – it's difficult to kind of determine a scope of work that you can price. And so where you see cost reimbursement contracts often being used in research and development, uh, the co- first case we're going to talk about here uh, used, uh, was a, a contract uh, to um, uh, provide logistic support to the warfighter uh, during the Iraq war. Uh, that's a very difficult scope right. of work to price. Right. Uh, and so That's the con- a fluid responsibility, right? And you Performance just, responsibility. Exactly. Exactly. So – you know, the government would just, you know, issue uh, a task order. Uh, this is an idea. You know, we'll, we'll get into this in a little bit more. But our you know, cost reimbursement contract, since you don't know exactly the scope of work. And, and so what's important in those in those in any cost reimbursement contract, the contractor has to have, you know, some sort of system to keep track of its incurred cost so that it knows what to, to bill. So what also comes up often with cost reimbursement contracts is, you know, how do you segregate allowable for from unallowable cost and, you know, what is going into your indirect cost pools that you're being charged indirect cost of the contract. So it can be a very tricky uh, um, you got to be careful with cost right. reimbursement contracts in your record keeping. Right. And, you know, to the extent, you know, that it is just cost. It doesn't include profit. No. Right. right. There's no. a fee. There's fee on top. There's fee on top of it. So, you know, there's different types of fee there. There's fixed fee where, you know, you just have it's what the name implies. You know, you you perform the contract and you set up front fixed fee. You know, you're going to perform the contract and your fixed fee will be a million bucks or whatever. Then there's award fee when the fee is actually determined on the basis of certain criteria. Did you meet certain performance metrics, that kind of stuff? That's award fee. Uh, then there's incentive fees, which is oftentimes turned, you know, tied to you keep costs down. You know, yeah. you know yeah. if you keep costs down, you'll make more in fee. The one thing that is uh, important to keep in mind with cost reimbursement contracts, there is a there is a type of fee that is prohibited by the FAR, and that's fee determined as a percentage of cost. Yeah, cost plus percentage. Cost plus, right. cost plus percentage of cost is a forbidden contracting type under the Federal Acquisition Regulation. 
right, you can't enter into that. Yeah, because there's no end. There could be there's, no end to it, <laughs> right? Know, there's, that just incentivizes the contractor to run up costs as much as possible. And the government doesn't want to do that. Right. So, so, um, and I think this is one of your cases. Uh, the, right? This first We're, case is yeah, one of my cases. Ca- it's a one from the Iraq War. It is and, from the Iraq War. It and is, and it um, involves KBR. Can you tell yeah. us about that case? I, I mean, it's amazing that. These things do go on for so long. Oh, it right? is! It is! It is astonishing. So the, this first case doesn't involve KBR Kellogg Brown and Root, uh, which had um, the, the, what, what the contract at issue here is a contract we refer to as Log Cap Three. There has been a, a series of Log Cap contracts. The first Log Cap contract goes all the way back to the early '90s, and it's the uh, Army's Logistics uh, Civil Augmentation Program. That's Log Cap, uh, and the purpose of Log Cap is to provide a contractor logistic support to the United States Army uh, as it is uh, uh, as it's needed, uh, including in some not very nice areas of the world. Uh, Log Cap Three uh, was awarded to KBR uh, at the end of 2001, shortly after 9/11. Yes, um, and was the iteration of Log Cap that was in place for the majority of the you know most uh, significant activity during the Iraq War. So when the Iraq War started in March of 2003, when the United States invaded Iraq, uh, KBR received a number of task orders to support the warfighter. And this included, you know, dining facility. You know, the, the government made the decision a long time ago that, that uh, uh, United States soldiers would no longer peel potatoes. And so that work is done by contractors. And so in Iraq, it was done by KBR uh, and its subcontractors under Log Cap 3 running dining facilities you know, moving material in and out of theater, uh, taking out the trash, you know, all that kind of stuff. Right. And and when you think about that, what's being performed and what was asked of the companies, it's remarkable in a lot of ways, a remarkable success story in logistic support. It is. Or, I mean, that you're, that the U.S. military can, can project itself clear to the other side of the yes. planet yes. and have – you know, the the logistical support that you're describing, yes. you know, there and the and essentially supporting yes. them day and night, 24 hours a day. Yes. And taking care. It's, a, it's, it's amazing. It's astonishing. I mean, the invasion was in March of 2003 and the, and the directive to KBR was we want beans and franks for the soldiers by the 4th of July. And KBR did it. So, I mean, it, it is. And I've had numerous conversations with folks, you know, offline from the, you know, within the military and the Pentagon you know, I mean, the 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 KBR's record of success uh, in you know meeting the military's needs under you know really terrible conditions uh, is just astonishing. Yeah. yeah. So I'm so, sorry. To so anyway, so. so anyway, in this in this in this uh, in the log cap contract, as you would expect, uh, not surprisingly, the government promises promised uh, to protect KBR uh, and its subcontractors as they were performing work, uh, you know, in, in theater. Uh, and they promised to provide in the contract. They promised to provide protection that was commensurate with that given to DOD civilians. And then, as they were issuing task orders, and as the threat, as actually the conditions in Iraq were worsening, uh, that promise uh, they, they promised to provide force protection that was commensurate with the threat. Um, and as folks may remember, uh, you know, we initially moved, went into Iraq. There was a period of fairly, you know, fairly quiet. But then, you know, very soon, you know, later in 2003 and then in 2004, Iraq became a very hot war. Um, and um, KBR, uh, um, as you know, there were you know, KBR convoys bringing uh, 
uh, material into theater increasingly came under attack. Um, and the government um, at this point really does not – at this point, the government does not dispute. Um, the government failed to meet that obligation uh, to protect KBR and its subs. And actually what resulted very tragically, uh, a number of KBR employee and subcontractor deaths uh, during the course of the war. And as KBR and its subs were, were performing this work, a number – uh, at least one, maybe perhaps more of KBR subcontractors uh, in order to keep, you know, providing dining facilities sure. of services for the warfighter, um, went out and hired private security. Uh, with the full knowledge of the U.S. military, uh, we have evidence of, you know, of, of, of the military, you know, giving approval to the use of private security as uh, folks were entering theater. Oftentimes this was coming from Kuwait into Iraq. Um, right, and that right there. Well, let's take a break, sure. Jason, and you can finish this, you know, the, describing what happened in the case. Absolutely. And, and why it's important. I will. Okay. My guest today is Jason Workmaster. He's a member at Miller Chevalier. I'm Roger Waldron, and you're listening to Off the Shelf on the Federal News Radio, a part of the Federal News Network. Welcome back to Off the Shelf on Federal News Radio, a part of the Federal News Network. I'm Roger Waldron, and my guest today is Jason Workmaster, who is a member at Miller Chevalier, um, a, also known as a partner at <laughs> Miller Chevalier. Uh, Jason is you know, our resident uh, cost reimbursement uh, guru. Um, we're talking, when we took the break, we were talking about uh, it's really interesting decision in a case involving KBR and cost reimbursement contract support, security support in Iraq back during the Iraq War. And Jason, you know, so you know, so the subcontractor had hired security guards security. to protect and be able to deliver supplies exactly. to support the warfighter. So what happened then? What happened then? So that happened between you know 2004 2006 KBR. Uh, was also using private security to protect, you know, this was actually protect on an indirect basis. They were incurring some indirect costs to protect executives. They'd come in and, you know, see, you know, monitor performance of the contract, that kind of stuff. Um, so anyway, that's all going on to 4004, 56. Government's fully aware of it. Army's fully aware of it. Everybody knows it's needed. Um, well, Congress gets interested uh, in this issue in late 2006. Um, it's often never, it's it's very rarely a good thing for contractors when <laughs> when Congress gets interested in sure. something. Yes, and there was a there was a series of hearings, uh, and uh, these back at the time, the, the uh, Congressman Waxman uh, was the chair of the, the the Government Oversight Committee or whatever it was called at the time, uh, and they were holding a series of hearings uh, regarding KBR's performance and various other things, and um, uh, the committee uh, be, got very stirred up over the use of private security. Um, uh, they uh, uh, were holding a hearing in February, early February of 2007, where Undersecretary, Deputy Secretary was coming to testify on this subject of the use of private security. And the day before her, she was the, the day before she was uh, to testify, the government issued a letter to KBR saying, "We are shocked to learn of the use of private security under this contract, and we are taking back 20 million dollars effective immediately." Sounds like the Casablanca movie. Right? Exactly. exactly. It's exactly <laughs> like Casablanca. <laughs> and so then uh, the, the undersecretary, whatever, shows up the next day and tells Congressman Waxman, we just took $20 million back from KBR. And the congressman says, this hearing may very well have saved the American taxpayer $20 million. bucks." Well, that was the first $20 bucks they took back. They took ended up taking back about another $25 million. 
Uh, at one point, their total demand was up to 103 million that they wanted wow, back. Yeah. Um, we, of course, then began litigate. This is all happening in 2007. So, just as a you know contract disputes you know person, uh, you know we we filed certified claims demanding return of the money. Those claims begin to be submitted in 2007. As the government takes more money, we submit more claims demanding return of the money. Um, so we submit these claims. 2007, 9, 10. Then the government, this is just kind of a side note, but the government then brings a False Claims Act case on the basis that the allegedly the charging of private security was unallowable. So, and, the gov- and I should have noted this. So this whole case, from a legal perspective, is a cost allowability case. Yes. Is the cost associated with the use of private security an allowable cost under KBR's cost reimbursable contract? So the government's position in the case was, well, it's not because we were obligated to protect you. And our response to that was, but you failed, <laughs> but you failed in that obligation. And their, 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 but their position was that uh, because they were obligated to protect us, that meant we couldn't use it and the use was unreasonable. So uh, they sue us also under the False Claims Act case. So we have this kind of parallel proceedings. We're over at the Armed Services Board of Contract Appeals on the contract issues. And then also in D.C. District Court, there's this False Claims Act case going on. That actually, I'll never forget. They sued us under the False Claims Act on on April Fool's Day, twenty ten. I'll never forget that. Okay, <laughs> uh, April Fool's Day, twenty ten. So that, that we have about two years worth of parallel litigation going on. Uh, ultimately, the government uh, there we get a a, a, a couple a, a good decision on a kind of a preliminary motion over in the contract case. The government gives up on its fraud case. We have a hearing uh, in twenty thirteen on the um, in the contract case which results in a victory for us. Uh, the, the board finds at that time that the, the contract did not prohibit the use of private security, so the costs were allowable. The government took that up on appeal to the federal circuit. Uh, the federal circuit uh, remanded for further proceedings at, at that time. This was back in 2015. Remanded for further proceedings on whether the government had breached its obligation. So in the initial decision from the board, the board had not used the breach word. They had not said the government breached and so the Federal Circuit wanted to hear from the, the board, did the government breach? So we went back. And so this latest round of uh, the case was we were back before the board in 2017. We got a decision from the board saying, yes, in fact, the government did breach. Uh, but then the, the, the government, what, what the government went up on appeal on and was the subject of this most recent decision from the Federal Circuit, the government asserted that the Board of Contract Appeals did not have jurisdiction to determine whether the government had breached its obligation because, according to them, we had not submitted a claim on that subject to the contracting officer. So after 12 years of litigation that had all involved, at its core, this obligation of the government to protect KBR and its subs, the government asserted that that issue was not in the case and that no quarter board had had jurisdiction over it. So we were before the federal circuit in January, had oral argument. Uh, and um, the oral argument, uh, the first question from the chief judge, chief judge of the federal circuit, first question for the government lawyer was, uh, so, Mr., you know, Mr. Justice Department lawyer, if we rule for KBR here, this case is over, right? That was her first question. And then from that question, it kind of went downhill for the government. <laughs> and we, uh, uh, we uh, uh, got a decision from the federal circuit just last month uh, in, in July where the, the court found us, we're very happy to, uh, uh, to report uh, board, the, that the board had jurisdiction, uh, and now just uh, just recently, the, uh, 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 the government uh, the government's deadline to to uh, to ask for a hearing or anything on that 
uh, uh, matter has has passed. Uh, and so, uh, you know, that decision of the federal circuit um, is, and it's 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 of it's of importance for contractors because as a legal matter, uh, what we were asserting was that the government's prior material breach of the contract had excused any obligation that we had, you know, that there may have been to not use private security, and because of that, the your costs associated with the use of private security should be allowable. And so going forward for contractors, anytime you, know, you have a case, it's going to be important for the contractor to be looking and thinking, is there something the government did that breached the contract you know, prior to the thing that, that they accused me of? increased your costs. Right? Well, right, exactly. Yeah. So that, that could affect that, that, you know, that, that potentially you know, let me off the hook of some other obligation I allegedly had, and so the costs of that are allowable. Yes, that would otherwise have been unallowable. That otherwise would have been unallowable. It was exactly. documentation an important part of the case? Like, documentation was an important part of the case. Yes, yes, it was. I mean, documentation. That's another lesson for contractors. It is. Right? Do- well, and we had the, you know, unfortunately, we had the documentation that, you know, and the, the critical documentation there, a lot, some of it at least was, uh, you know, documentation of the government's full knowledge and acceptance. Yeah. You know, we, we even had a, 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 you know, KBR had submitted a, 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 cons, a package seeking consent of a particular subcontract where the, the package had said to, to a DCMA contracting officer, where the package had said, you know, the, 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 the sub is going to be using private security, and the, the ACO came back and said approved. Right. You know, so, I mean, that kind of documentation was, was very helpful. Uh, and it was, it's actually, it's, it's great that we had it because, you know, we, all, one of the other issues that came up in this case you know, we were trying to get documents out of the government. You know, the government, we never got all the documents that we wanted from the government because the government said, well, you know, those are, you know, those were in theater and now they're in some warehouse down in CENTCOM and Tampa right, and right. nobody Who can knows? find them. And, like uh, which, which move, Raiders of the Lost Ark? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> they're in the, they're, yes, Harrison Ford is still looking for these documents. Yeah, so it was a great victory and it, it will be helpful to contractors on this, this, this jurisdictional issue of when you can assert prior material breach and... Does it have to go to the contracting officer? It's something that comes up routinely, and this that's a, a really interesting decision. story in yeah. terms of what happened. No, in that it was situation. very interesting, and you can you can relate to it because you think about the headlines and what you saw in the news back then about yeah. all those things and what was going on and the convoys and that sort of yeah. stuff. So, um, hey Jason, you know what? We're already up on the break. Okay, so we've covered KBR. We, we, we got we really have. But when we come back, we'll talk a little about log cap. Um, there's some. Lopcat 5, um, <laughs> yes. which involves some really interesting bid protest sort of scenarios and what's going on. Yes. And then maybe we'll talk a little bit about get your like some legal, pure legal analysis of the Jedi decision. Absolutely. Okay. My guest today is Jason Workmaster. He is a member at Miller Chevalier. Uh, I'm Roger Waldron. You're listening to Off the Shelf on Federal News Radio, a part of the Federal News Network. Welcome back to Off the Shelf on Federal News Radio, a part of the Federal News Network. My guest today is Jason Workmaster, a part a partner slash member at Miller Chevalier. I'm Roger Waldron, and this segment, Jason, um, let's talk a little about some interesting bid protest sort of developments. Sure. You know, before. The show when you were like briefing me on these things, I was thinking, really, that's kind of interesting. <laughs> yes. So, log cap, uh, log cap five, log the cap version, five. fifth version of it, fifth, yes. first, fifth follow on, whatever, which you know relates to log cap three, which we just got done talking about, <laughs> yes. right? So it's funny how they overlap. After, it, <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, but um, you know, those the, 
they've had the competition. There's some bid protests. Can you talk a little bit about you know sure. what's going on there? Sure. So yeah, as you said, we were skipping log cap four. Yes, and yes. we're going straight. Apparently, it was uneventful. Yeah, right? <laughs> going straight to log cap five, yeah. and, and which is you know, the, and you know, again, like log cap three, these are IDI. This is an IDIQ, but unlike log cap three, this is a multiple award IDIQ. So log cap three KBR was the sole log cap contract holder. Uh, under log cap five, the the government made uh, a number of awards, uh, which were then uh, protested. Um, and they were all pro. There were pro- a number of protests filed at the GAO. As many listeners probably already know, when you uh, want to file a bid protest, you have uh, a few choices. Actually, you have an agency level option. You've got the GAO option, and you've got going to the Court of Federal Claims. Uh, and oftentimes, these are you know these are additive. These are not you 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 can do one and then do the next and then then do the next. Right. Right. Um, and so what oftentimes will happen is disappointed offerors will first go to JO, and one of the uh, you know the benefits of doing so is that if you go to JO within certain timelines, you get an automatic stay of performance by the awardees. Uh, and so this protest is no different. This series of protests is no different. The, the off, disappointed offerors start out at JO, um, and there's there's four protests lodged by different protesters, uh, some of whom had actually won contracts. Uh, however, their view, the, 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 the couple of the uh, contractors that had won contracts, they had issues with the um, you know, amount of work share they'd gotten, that kind of stuff. So, they all, the, so they were even, okay. even though they had won, they protested. It uh, won a piece of it. They still had a, a beef with the award. Right. They didn't get as much as they yeah. thought. And then, of course, then some of the protests were brought by people who just didn't get a contract. Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, the first of those uh, gets decided by GAO. Uh, so uh, there's four, as I mentioned. Uh, one gets decided, the protester loses. Um, the protester then goes ahead and goes to court. Well, that protest – so what you can do is you, you can lose at J.O., and then you can go start the whole thing over again at the Court of Federal Claims. And so that's what this protester did. Well, while this protester did that, the other three protests are still sitting there back at J.O. Um, and on one of them – they were getting close to and, – and under this under the law, under the statute that governs GAO on this kind of stuff, GAO is under a statutory obligation to issue a decision within 100 days from when they receive a protest. And so this, this one of these other uh, protesters, very, getting very close, well, as soon as the, uh, the protester who'd lost GAO went to the court, as soon as that happened, there was a motion filed uh, at the GAO. I believe this is right. I think there was – I'm sure this was as a result of a motion – um, to dismiss because there's a rule that says GAO will not right. consider uh, protests when the subject matter is over at the Court of Federal Claims, um, and this sometimes you know this sometimes happens and other has happened you know it's happened in the past. So there was okay. So the GAO had the question: Should we do we have to dismiss these other three protests? And GAO decided, yeah, they did because there's a chance that what's happening over here at the court will render what GAO is doing academic. And so they dismissed the protest. They dismissed the protest, one of these protesters, on the 98th of the 100th days. Wow. And so they were two days away uh-huh. from, getting their, from getting, you know, getting their decision. Uh, and so they don't get their decision. Uh, and they have – so then everybody runs back. Now everybody's running over to the Court of Federal Claims to file their protest. Yeah, to join that other protest. And they either have to file new protests or join the protest. It's already yeah. there. Yeah. Um, so they get over to the court. And very – this is also very interesting. The court then reaches out. The court has the ability to do this. Uh, the court says, you know what? We want to hear from GAO 
uh, we want an advisory opinion from GAO on essentially what you know what 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 would they have you know, what were they going to do uh, in that protest that they didn't get to decide. So that that's very interesting. That's not not something the court does. Very I often. I can't recall hearing that happening. In, oh in no, because you know norm and because norm and 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 the the order issued by the court does note that you know and the, the court of federal claims judges have noted this over and over and over again. Uh, they're not bound by GAO. Yes. So, you know, the, whatever GAO They've says. They've reversed GAO on a number of occasions, yep. on they, big cases. They yeah. can go in a completely different direction. Uh, they're not, you know, they're, they, they can, it's a complete redo when you go to the court. So they're not bound by GAO. But uh, it, it was interesting to see that despite that, uh, they still want to hear what GAO thinks. So that's an interesting insight into, you know, even though the court isn't bound, you know, they do – Look at what GAO says, and then you know, they understand that GAO bid protested hearing officers hear a lot of these protests, and they want to hear from a you know respected body on what they think of this issue. Yeah. Um, so that's that's an interesting piece of this. And the other interesting piece is one of the other one of the other protesters, as I mentioned, this is an IDIQ, uh, and so now they're over at the court as they got they got dismissed over at, at GAO. So now they're at the court. And they file their protest, and the government has moved to dismiss it. And the government's argument is, well, you're not – you're one of the, you're one of the you know, winners, and what you're really challenging here, you're not really challenging the award of the IDIQ. What you're doing is you're challenging the task order. And so under the statutes, uh, when you're challenging a task order with certain exceptions, uh, you got to go to GAO. Yeah, the court uh, doesn't have jurisdiction. The court doesn't have jurisdiction, except in some limited circumstances. And so now they're fighting that out. You know, does the court have jurisdiction over this protest, which, according to DOJ, uh, involves an attack on task order awards and not an attack on the on the underlying idea? And that's, is that because of the apportionment piece of how much work? I, 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 they, they, they you know, yeah, it's yeah, under it's, protective it's, orders. It's, 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 they're essentially asking the court to kind of look beyond because I'm I'm quite confident that the way the protest was worded it was worded in a way to make clear that what was being challenged was the underlying award, but that's the gist of it. They're yeah. asking the court to Interesting. Yeah. I've never heard of that one either. That's no, scenario. it's it's a it's a it's a very interesting it's like you bouncing back and forth it, between GAO and the court here <laughs> for that yes. for that protester, right? Yes, yes. So interesting. So so an advisory opinion potentially and then an argument about the scope of the protest in a right, sense, and right? which which you know back at GAO there wouldn't have, they there wouldn't have been that argument right you know, back at GAO there you know there would have been no question that GAO even if it was even if it somehow sure. could be construed as a task order or protest there would have been no question that GAO had pro, had jurisdiction over it. right so and now another interesting case Jedi oh um, yes so yes. can you um, we got about a minute left in this segment sure. can you just you know, so there there's the decision. Um, that uh, where the protest was denied by yep. the court, or but it was they denied, did, it was denied at G. Well, first of all, they went to GAO. Yeah, but uh, just real briefly, so just so everybody's you know on the same page here. Jedi is, of course, the Defense Department's massive cloud uh, uh, cloud computing uh, contract is expected to have a value of ten billion dollars. Uh, it's been set as you know they had decided to make a single award. Um, that was and that's what was protested to GAO. Uh, that was protested by by Oracle uh, to GAO. GAO denied the protest, uh, and uh, following that, Oracle went to the Court of Federal Claims. 
Um, and the Court of Federal Claims has now just recently uh, also uh, denied uh, Oracle's protest. And uh, in addition to uh, the decision to make this a single award, uh, uh, Oracle had made uh, um, a number of allegations regarding or- conflicts of interest uh, uh, against the government uh, 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 um, that they argued you know, meant that the whole procurement needed to be redone. Um, And very interestingly, so this, this, the way the court came down on this, uh, the court found that even if there, and the court had some, you know, some things to say about improprieties in the procurement. Uh, However, uh, the court said that none of, none of the, none of the alleged improprieties mattered because there was a specific technical requirement it's about gating yes uh, there's a specific specific technical requirement that Oracle apparently conceded it did not meet uh, and so because of that the uh, court found that even even if there were improprieties Oracle wasn't harmed by them there was no prejudice to Oracle because Oracle would not be able to get an award anyway so it's it's you know as a legal matter you know, it's a reminder that in every pro- – and this is the case whether you go to GAO or the court. In every protest, prejudice matters. Yeah, right. So – and you know what? That's perfect timing, Jason. We're <laughs> up on the break. When we come back, might have a, a couple follow-up questions on JEDI, and maybe then we'll turn to uh, look a little bit about uh, what's going on at GSA, schedules consolidation in particular – uh, my guest today is Jason Workmaster. He's a member at Miller Chevalier. I'm Roger Waldron, and you're listening to Off the Shelf on Federal News Radio, a part of the Federal News Network. Welcome back to Off the Shelf on Federal News Radio, a part of the Federal News Network. My name is Roger Waldron. My guest today is Jason Workmaster, who's a member at Miller Chevalier. We're talking government procurement. We spend a fair amount on cost reimbursement contracting issues of, of that, that may mean a lot to government contractors. We talked some bid protest and started talking about Jedi. And I guess the one question I would have about Jedi is just it's fascinating. You know, there's two justifications for doing a multiple war. The contracting officer did one um, using based on Part 16 of the FAR, and that determination was found to be you know reasonable mm-hmm. by the court. But then there was a justification, you know, I think by the by uh, at a much higher level, and, mm-hmm. you know, where the determination focused on the contract type, the statutory sort of that if you do a firm fixed price with specific tasks uh, that are identified in the contract, it can be a single award. Uh, the court didn't buy that one. Do you have any thoughts on that? It's just kind of interesting. In one case, it was okay. Based on slightly different criteria, right. and, and then the, on the statutory criteria that are incorporated in regulation about contract type and others, that they the judge said no, it wasn't good. No, I, it, 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 I I think it's interesting how the the court found both that and also found no prejudice. I mean that that's that that's that's that, yeah, that's, that's kind of interesting. You know, yeah. it, it's yeah. it's it's there just there seems to be a tension there. Uh, uh, and I, you know, if, as far as lessons go for the future, uh, I, I, I think what we're going to see is, you know, um, uh, determination, you know, determinations and findings on this subject that are uh, button this up. I, I think mm-hmm. in light of the, in following up following this decision, 
the the government will try to button up in as many different ways as possible following this decision because they're not going to, you know, regardless of the fact that the government won this this particular round they're not going to they would prefer not to have to go through this kind of thing in the future so I, I think that's likely to be I think regard also Roger it's important to note Oracle has now just recently announced they're appealing this decision yes yeah. so you know it's, it'll be interesting to see what the federal circuit does with uh, both this uh, and the prejudice issue. You know, I, I think for um, kind of what, whatever the, what, what, what the federal circuit does with the prejudice issue could affect a lot of protests. I mean, just right. kind of across the board, because that's an element of every single protest. What they do on this subject of uh, the justification for, you know, single award or multiple award, they'll have a, a narrower application. Uh, but regardless of what they do, I think if I'm the government, I take the decision that they got from the court and I'm a little bit more uh, careful right. um, about my DNFs. Right. Yeah. Yeah. That sounds like a, a wise advice. Yeah. I, I mean, think, if yeah. you have multiple bases, use all of them. Right. Yeah. Don't <laughs> pick one. Right. <laughs> don't, uh, yeah. yeah. You know, it, it, if, if, if you have a, if you have a colorable argument that you fit into more than one, use it. Yeah. So it'll be fascinating to watch the, how the, how the, the rest of it plays out. It right? does. I mean, because I mean, it's kind of looping back to what we were talking about before. When you go up to the, so the Court of Federal Claims, you know, a significant portion of its jurisdiction is you know government contracts, but protests that kind of stuff. You go up to the Federal Circuit, it is not. You know, the Federal Circuit, the vast majority of the Federal Circuit's docket is uh, patent cases, mm-hmm. and so you know you're dealing with a very different set of judges uh, when you get up to the Federal Circuit than uh, at the. Court of uh, Federal Claims, a lot of those judges, their background is patent law, uh, not government contracts. Right. So it'll so be we, very interesting to see what they do. Right, right. So, um, and just, just so, another thing I just wanted to get your thoughts, because you, you, know, you, you do do a lot of schedules work. I do. Um, and GSA is moving, and again, actually, a couple of weeks ago, they get, again announced, like at the end of August, they announced... Um, they're on track to issuing their consolidated solicitation on October 1st. Okay. And that means, you know, new offers yeah. will come in, will be under the consolidated schedule. And then, you know, they're going to work towards, um, you know, pre-existing contracts where people have multiple contracts, like working them to a single contract, yeah. you know, across the different schedules yeah. and merging it into that single one, which yeah. will be – you know, GSA, to its credit, is talking about doing it based on the circumstances of each contractor and working with them to try to make a smooth transition. Um, you know, just any, you know, tips or advice when you're thinking about what uh, companies potentially could be going through? Oh, my goodness. I mean, there's just so many things. I mean, the the, the initial thing that comes to mind is to, you know, for for, for help in getting through any kind of consolidation are the most OCD people you can possibly imagine because the the amount of ticking and tying that's going to have to happen if you're a contract that already has multiple schedules. Yes. I mean, I think it's going to be easier for those for if you never had a schedule and you're going to apply for one and you're going for the consolidated schedule. I mean, that's that is going to be uh, I don't think that's going to be all that different. From what you've what done you currently before. do is I mean, just one schedule. Yeah, it's just going to be one schedule. Of, right, yeah. it's going to be one schedule. You're going to get your one schedule, and you're going to have one schedule to administer. Now, I think what's going to be tricky in having one schedule to administer if you have multiple different bases bases of award for different product uh, product offerings and services I, uh, offerings you have on the on the one schedule. I mean, I think that's going to because you could and you can already have that 
you know, even now you can have multiple, you know, bases of award for different stuff on a, on the same schedule. But I think as we move to a consolidated world, that's just going to get even all that more complicated. And, you know, making sure you're tracking right across your product line, your services line that you have on schedules, I think going to get that much more complicated. Does that, does that get, you know, even more, I mean, does it come more complex or that you have to be careful because GSA is talking too, they're going to go from like 900 line items, SINs, they use this term SIN, yep. special line item right. number, to like 300. And they're also going to use sort of build them along a NAICS yep. focused. Yep. Does that, I mean, they, even trying to track and where things fill in, is that you see For, that as a. Know, and again, if you're brand new to the world, if you're brand new to this world, it'll just be the world that you're familiar, you know, it'll just be the world for you. But if you're an existing schedule holder, how you you know, consolidate down from 900 to 300 and you move to a NAICS-based system, you know, documenting all of that. You know, we were talking about documentation earlier. Right. You know, documenting how that all gets mapped and tracked and um, and that GSA is fully aware and recognizes how you're do you know, how that's being done is on and, and trying as best you can to get them on board with how it's being done. I mean, that's going to re- require a lot of patience and a lot of time and a lot of painstaking attention to detail because it's going to be very easy to get for stuff to get lost in the mix. And, you know, I think back also to when at the spring conference, when we heard GSA saying, you know, we're not all going to move, even if we're going to consolidate, consolidate, we're not necessarily going to get rid of existing contract numbers. So I I still haven't quite yet. uh, Maybe you've heard Roger, how that's going to work. But I don't quite yet understand how I'm going to have a consolidated contract presumed with a contract number and then other contract numbers underneath that contract. That that could get keeping track of orders. This affects payment of IFF. This you know this affects everything. Right. I think part of the you know trying to keep numbers in place is for purposes of orders and yep. pre-existing BPAs sure. and making sure sure you got those bases covered. Yeah, Companies those con- need to think yeah, about once that. Those contra- I mean, once those contract – anytime a contract number changes, you know, there's going – there could be a question about the viability of BPAs that were issued underneath it. Yeah. Yeah. It's, yeah. Uh, yeah, it's good, good – some good thoughts there. So we have a couple minutes left, Jason. I want to just quickly ask you – we're going to be – go back to your – uh, cost reimbursement guru. <laughs> yeah. There's this Bechtel decision with regard to litigation costs or yes, third-party yes. litigation costs. Yes. Real quickly, what does that mean for contractors? Very, very quickly. And, and as many folks who have been around government contracts for a while are probably already aware, there, the, the, this is, the Bechtel case is a, a, a new, re- relatively very new decision from the federal circuit. Uh, it tracks back to a decision from a few years ago that people probably remember, the TCOM decision which uh, TCOM and this and Bechtel involve the uh, a contractor's ability under its you know cost reimbursement vehicles to recover the costs of in these in these cases third party litigation and so in both of these cases the contractor was sued uh, the the um, the TCOM involved a Title VII action uh, Bechtel involved other allegations of harassment that kind of stuff you know personnel action yes uh, so they you know and they and both in both cases the case the, the case is settled and so the question that ultimately came up was okay well we've settled these cases we resolved them um, but you know these costs should be allowable we should get reimbursed for the cost of the settlement and other you know other associate costs by the government uh, and the government said no uh, and in TCOM the Federal Circuit had said that well because your contract, 
concludes an anti-discrimination provision. Uh, it says thou shalt not discriminate. These costs um, and uh, and there's another part in FAR Part 31, which are the cost principles that govern what is right. allowable and what isn't. Uh, there's a there's a provision in FAR Part 31 that says you can't recover for costs that do not comply with the terms of the contract. They said, well, obviously the costs of discriminating don't comply with the terms of the contract because it says don't discriminate. And so the cost of settling litigation involving discrimination allegations, you can't recover unless you demonstrate that the allegations, uh, the the um, the uh, under the lawsuit had no uh, substantial chance of success. Uh, the, that issue came back to the court in uh, Bechtel. Bechtel argued that um, look, we had a spe- we, I mean, they had a they had a course of conduct. This the agency here was Department of Energy. They had a course of conduct where the Department of Energy had reimbursed these costs routinely in the past. They had a special provision in the contract that addressed the allowability of third party litigation costs. And, you know, TCOM had recognized if you had a special provision there, you know, in their, your contract that made the cost allowable, you know, TCOM didn't didn't foreclose your ability to recover. Bechtel argued, look, we have this special provision. DOE's pay, pay these costs for years. Federal Circuit said, too bad. This case is governed by TCOM. You still lose. So it was it was very, it was a very disappointing decision for contractors and an indication that at least on this issue of allowability of costs incurred for, uh, you know, discrimination cases, harassment cases. Uh, going to be very difficult for the contractor to recover uh, if the CO determines that the underlying litigation, you know, you, if you if, the, if if they don't buy the argument that the underlying litigation had no little likelihood of success. Right. Interesting. So there's really not. I mean, it's just a new unallowable cost. It's a it's an unallow- it, it is a it is a reiteration of an unallowable cost. Took TCOM, I'd say, uh, you know, maybe another half a step further. It makes it, it was, different than it was. Then. Um, uh, and at the same time, I know we're not going to get into this, but it is, it, you know, on, to end on a happy note, can we just end on a quick happy sure, note? Quick. A quick happy note would be DCA has just recently issued new guidance on expressly unallowable costs, uh, which as if, if you have cost reimbursement contracts, if a cost is expressly unallowable and you charge for it, you can get dinged with penalties. And uh, DCAA's position had been that a cost could be expressly unallowable, even if it wasn't expressly stated in the in the in the, in the cost principles. Sort of st- stealth. <laughs> yeah, exp- it, uh, yeah, it could be implicitly expressly uh, uh, unallowable. Uh, uh, well, that's interesting. And they but they lost a case on that a Raytheon case, and they have updated their guidance uh, in a, in a good way, and it's a it's a good development for contractors. So as DCA is coming in, hopefully your audits will go a little bit easier on the question of expressly unallowable costs with the new DCAA guidance. Only the government would come up with, like, implicitly unexpressly unallowable costs. Yes. Uh, uh, Jason, thank you so much. Uh, uh, I want to thank my guest today, Jason Workmaster. He's a member at Miller Chevalier. I'm Roger Waldron, and you've been listening to Off the Shelf on Federal News Radio, a part of the Federal News Network. You've been listening to Off the Shelf with Roger Waldron of the Coalition for Government Procurement on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. Tune in Tuesday mornings at 11 or subscribe to this show on iTunes or Podcast One. To be your best every day, You need proven quality sleep every night. Science proves your best sleep is vital to your mental, emotional, and physical health. And that's where the sleep number bed comes in. And let me tell you, 
ever since I've had it, my Sleep IQ score is just going higher and higher. And did you know 8 out of 10 couples say that one of them sleeps too hot or too cold? Science tells us regulating your sleep temperature leads to higher quality sleep. For many couples, temperature struggles are a real challenge. So here are some tips to help you both sleep just right. Look for beds designed with temperature benefits such as the new Sleep Number Climate 360 smart bed that actively warms and cools each side so you both sleep blissfully comfortable. And now save 40% on the Sleep Number 360 special edition smart bed. Plus special financing for a limited time. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com slash podcast one. Sleep Number, the official sleep and wellness partner of the National Football League. Subject to credit approval, minimum monthly payments required. See sleepnumber.com for details.